0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board while Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom. Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen
2: here. Scott Thompson.
0: It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. 900 CHML. Um, And I guess the big news today, uh, an apology uh, from London police uh, in regard to the World Junior Sex Assault Assault case and to the victim apologizing for the delay in this getting to where it is, but then really wouldn't elaborate on that, uh, whether there was new evidence or, or what has happened to get us to where we are and uh, i guess by the end of this all all that uh, that will be found out so that's where we are right now and of course a publication ban so we'll keep you up to date on that story as uh, as it progresses as well i this was kind of uh, shocking former leaf landy McDonald uh in hospital after a cardiac event but he's fine 71 years old this month he turns he's recovering uh but uh credits uh, a couple of off duty nurses who are I guess at the Calgary airport when he fell ill. So uh, he is on the mend. Good news there. And also uh, news coming out of the UK, King Charles uh, diagnosed with cancer. And this was after he went in for a procedure, a prostate procedure last week. You remember that? And I guess this was discovered while all of that was going on. So, uh, more on that as it becomes available. However, again, um, uh, Buckingham Palace, pretty uh, pretty quiet on all of that stuff. And, and many surprised to even be hearing this information. Uh, but many say that um, they're just trying to get out ahead of the story uh, before something breaks. We're going to talk about the World Junior and uh, the sex a- assault case. And it, uh, of course, reopening today, where that goes, how the discussion moves forward. Uh, and, you know, the big question is, why wasn't this done before? Uh, why didn't this go to trial before? Why did we end up where we are? Uh, with a settlement and 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 not going to trial. So those questions hopefully will be answered by the end of all of this. Also, Canada to host 13 games of the 2026 FIFA World Cup, which is uh, pretty cool for those that are soccer fans and uh, Toronto close enough to go. Vancouver, I don't know. That might be a bit of a stretch, but uh, we'll talk about that. Soccer fans uh, excited about that. And you may have seen this already. We were talking about it last week, but it's the um, 30th anniversary of We Are the World, and there's a document, uh, a document, uh, uh, a doc- a documentary, thank you so much, Ben. Uh, here, would you hold my hand, please? A documentary that talks about that night, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, there was so much stuff going on in those people's lives at that time, especially uh, Lionel Ritchie, who hosted the American Music Awards that night that it was recorded, as well as being a big winner. So, After that's all over, and you can imagine how exhausting that would be, then spending the night with a uh, a pile of uh, mu- musicians and artists and such in a in an L.A. studio and recording We Are the World. So a fascinating documentary about the backstage and uh, the in-studio moments, trying to keep the whole thing a secret and uh, and how they got all of those people in one place to do that. So fascinating story and uh, if you uh, get a chance to see the doc, I highly recommend it. I uh, haven't finished the whole thing but uh, certainly seen many pieces of it. Alan Cross is going to be joining us to talk about that coming up. Also, um, Ottawa extending the foreign home buyers plan for more than two years. So, in other words, uh, more difficult for those that don't live here to buy homes. This is really uh, a distraction because I think it's less than 2% of actual home buyers are. Uh, foreign home buyers. So, uh, you know, again, making it look like you're doing something which really doesn't have that much of an impact and perhaps more for Canadians who are looking to buy a home in another country because certain places like Italy have said, well, you you don't want us, we don't want you. And now Canadians are having a hard time doing the same thing. So, um, again, it's a supply and demand issue and the supply is being outstripped by a ever increasing demand which has been growing for 20 years so if you don't build enough guess what you end up with a housing crisis and really carving out foreigners or or what have you uh, really is is a headline grabber as opposed to anything that has a a substantial solution all right also this is kind of cool guess how old facebook is 50 ah i'm just razzing yet no it's 20 Bizarre, eh? Uh, so we're going to talk about that with Carmi Levy and uh, where it goes in the future, where it's been, how it got to where it is. I'm sure you've all seen the movie, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, coming up a little later on. Also, an interesting story which broke last week about many immigrants who are coming to Canada are leaving within a certain period of time, even up to 20 years. Um, and, and you know, and in this discussion of housing crisis and migration and such, obviously this is a hot topic, as is. Uh, uh, international students and such, uh, but many immigrants and the trends have shown that this is mm, happens quite a bit, even up to fifteen percent. Many just leaving to the United States. So a lot of an interesting discussion on that. All right. You heard the news conference uh, from London police a little earlier before the show started on CHML. And uh, of course, this in regard to the World Junior uh, hockey sex ac- assault case that is uh, back in court as of today. Let's bring in Dr. Anne Peguero, the La- uh Lang Chair of Sport Management at the University of Guelph and the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. And thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Yeah, thanks. Doing well, for sure uh and there
0: seems to be sort of two parts for me for this day one is the fact that this case is actually getting underway and is in court the other is the london uh, police news conference so let's start with that what are your thoughts with london police coming out and uh, uh, apologizing for the delay in this
2: I think that was unexpected by most people, um, but I also think it's indicative maybe of, of how the current London police are feeling about this investigation, the pressure they've been under, um, you know, in the last couple of years and, and feeling that for sure, you know, some, some sort of apology was warranted for both the, the victim and, and their family.
0: Uh, many are saying, does this suggest that new evidence is uh, or has emerged or that they're using what they had before with a different lens, perhaps?
2: Yeah, it was. They were pretty cagey about that in the in the press conference. And um, I think it probably frustrated the journalists. But on the other hand, I think if you look at it from the legal perspective, I'm not a lawyer, but I just think that, um, you know, they're doing everything they can not to jeopardize this case. And so sharing any of the information as to why they would have arrived at an apology or, or why they've actually got to charges this um, at this point, I think, um, you know, was wise on their part. And even though we really want to know and, and uh, et cetera, as the public, we, we have to let the judicial system do its thing and not compromise it.
0: All right. Your thoughts that this is finally making it to court now and in this whole process. What, what are your thoughts?
2: I think it's been a long time coming. Uh, I think, you know, as the as, as the public, we need to be patient. It's still going to take a couple of years, probably at least over a year to unfold in the court system. Um, and and I do think that many, many individuals who've been watching the case are are probably um relieved that we've got to some sort of uh some sort of charges and some sort of um concrete action in this case because we've been talking about it for for close to two years now
0: how concerned are you people rushing to judgment um or or is that is that is that, is, is that obvious now is that just something is that just the direction we have to go
2: well, I think that a lot of, you know, I, I think you're going to have a hard time finding people uh, who haven't heard of this story in Canada. So, so that for sure. Yeah. Um, and they did address that in the press conference today. I, I'm not uh, super concerned about it. I mean, there was some statistics shared uh, earlier today in, in, in news article about, you know, hockey, uh, Hockey players who've been charged uh, with sexual assault has has a very low conviction rate. So only 15% mm-hmm. of hockey players who've been charged in the last several years have actually been convicted versus a 42% for regular individuals convicted of sexual assault. So um, I think, you know, that that shows a little bit about where we place um, uh, sports uh Players, athletes in our, our society. And so I, I'm less concerned about uh, rushing to judgment and more concerned, I think, maybe about the flip side of that, which is, um, you know, people put athletes on pedestals and, uh, have a hard time reconciling when they, they transgress like this and actually believing that they're guilty of these crimes.
0: What about the victim in this situation now? Uh, obviously we, we heard that there was a settlement prior to all of this. Now, again, this is open again. What is their involvement here and, and what will they have to go through?
2: I think we know that in general with sexual assault uh, cases that the victim is, is essentially constantly revictimized by the process. And so, you know, this individual, um, in this case, has to be strong, have a strong support system, because they're going to be reliving, um, I think, that evening in detail over and over again through the weeks of the trials that's to come. So while there might be some relief from their part that there has been charges, there's still a long road ahead for them as individuals and victims in this situation.
0: How much would they have participated in all of this? I guess that's a legal question, isn't it?
2: I think it is, but I, I think, you know, we could all surmise that I don't think charges would have come if if the victim had not been a participant um, in the investigation and a full participant. Without the victim's um, statements um, and the evidence they could provide and only they could provide in some ways, I don't think the, che- the police would have brought charges.
0: Why do you think this was reopened after such a period of time?
2: I'd like to think the public pressure had something to do with it. I'd like to think that the Canadian public being interested and, um, you know, pushing both um, hockey Canada and and the court system to bring some, some justice to this situation may have played a role. Certainly the London police were under a huge amount of scrutiny, um, you know, to do something um, to at least look at what happened in the first go round at this and see where they could, uh, Get to this time, so so I think there was a lot of pressure, and and high profile cases do that, um, and I think that we're going to see, you know, hopefully other victims um, see that the system can uh, go back and look at their cases, and we might see more victims come forward.
0: How significant is this from that perspective?
2: I think it's significant and it's not just having to do with hockey. I think it has to do for victims of sexual assault who have maybe felt the system uh, hasn't taken them seriously or hasn't looked at their cases seriously. That was present and discussed in the press conference today um, that the London police are willing to have conversations with um, Mm. previous victims to come forward again and to bring their 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 case forward and and to have it re-looked at. So I don't know if that's indicative of something that's happened inside the London police, but it certainly seemed to be they were opening that door again today.
0: Dr. Ann Peguero with us, Lang Chair of Sport Management, University of Guelph, Co-Director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. and thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
2: Thank you for the conversation.
0: In case you haven't heard, Canada to host 13 games at the 2026 FIFA World Cup as it comes to North America. Let's bring in Joe Callahan, journalist for the Toronto Star, also read in The Guardian and The Irish Examiner, and here now. Joe, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, great to be with you, Scott. Thanks for having me. How big a deal is this, Joe? I mean, it's a,
3: to me, it's a pretty huge deal. It is the first time that a, a men's World Cup comes to Canada. Of course, uh, the country hosted in a solo sense the Women's World Cup in 2015, and that was a big deal. But the men's tournament still for now, in spite of the huge growth on the women's side of the game, is the biggest kind of sporting event in the world in terms of you know, I know the Olympics, the IOC and FIFA go toe to toe on this and they have different figures that they go against each other. But this is a World Cup that will be unlike anything we've seen because they've expanded it from 32 teams to 48 teams. It's absolutely enormous. So that's It's requiring an extra 40 games. And it's spread across three countries for the first time with Canada, the US and Mexico. So it is a huge deal. I'm not sure I was chatting about this as I've I'm, I'm, I'm been in Canada now almost a decade, but I'm from Ireland originally. And I was chatting about it with kind of friends in Ireland and friends in Toronto yesterday. And I don't know if there's been anything as big for Toronto on a world stage since, I don't know, maybe the G7 or something like that back back in the day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a huge deal on that kind of global zoomed out scale. Obviously soccer space in Canada, it's still in a growth phase. Uh, the guys getting to Qatar and the women winning the Olympic gold was huge, but I feel like this is taking it to a new, bigger space.
0: You talked about how this is expanding. It's over North America It's 16 host cities and such. How long is it going to take to play all this?
3: Well, <laughs> FIFA, uh, say that they are going to fit it all into 32, 33 days um which is quite something because it's 104 games but uh the big change is you're seeing a hugely expanded group stage um basically you're going to have all the guts of 60 games just to get rid of uh 16 teams you know Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's kind of like almost harder to get knocked out of the group stage than it is to kind of progress because 32 of the teams will progress to a new round of 32 stage Um, which will be an extra uh, knockout stage as such. And that's where a lot of the extra games are. But look, when we kind of look at the numbers and what was announced yesterday, Scott, as you know, FIFA do nothing in small measures. It was an all-singing, all-dancing, (laughs) hour-long broadcast yesterday with Kim Kardashian and Kevin Hart, and uh, we even had Drake (laughs) in there as well. But, you know, ultimately, this is a very American World Cup. Uh, 13 of the games will be hosted in Canada. 13 of the games will be hosted in Mexico. But that leaves 78 for the USA. Um, And certainly from kind of once the rubber hits the road in the kind of last 16 and quarterfinals, it's
0: very American uh it's interesting you say that joe because how is that being interpreted because this is great exposure for the u.s market is but is it a a different tourney as a result of that and you know i even think when i ask f1 fans if they're happy about Mm. uh, america's uh infiltration of f1 yeah yeah whatever sort of but not really is it it, what about that aspect of it and, and it being and having such a u.s template
3: it's, it's a really good question, Scott, because here's the thing. There's a Women's World Cup to come in 2027. It looks like that could be co-hosted by the U.S. and Mexico. And mm-hmm. then we've got the L.A. Olympics in 2028. I think we're going to be sick of the sight of big sporting events happening in the U.S. Um, but why are the IOC and FIFA going there so often? Because of the dollars, because mm-hmm. these huge NFL stadiums, Uh, are all going to be packed and sold out for every game. Um, You know, Toronto and Vancouver will equally, I'm sure of it, be sold out for every game. But yeah, like, I think... From the get-go, I was there, Scott, in Moscow in 2018 when the United bid uh, won the rights for twenty for the 2026 World Cup. It was a very American-led thing, um, but you know they were very happy. This was in the in the in the tr- first Trump presidency. If whether well, we're going to have a second one as well, but um, oh, wow. the US were very happy to have Mexico and Canada there with them and to kind of almost push them out very much in this United sense. But look, it is the way FIFA are going with these world cups. The, the, the men's world cup after that in 2030 will be co-hosted by uh, not just two, con- three countries, but two continents. It'll be Spain, Portugal, and then crossing the Mediterranean to Morocco. Um, so with this expanded uh, format, you know, there needs to be that kind of huge, um, I guess, scale to it. But look, that's not to say that 13 games isn't nothing. These 13 games are going to be big. And the fact that Canada, the men's team, will play all three of their group games at home is huge, too, particularly with that opener at BMO Field in Toronto.
0: You talked about the expansion and what that means for the game and such. What about the teams themselves? How does this change the competition? Does it?
3: Well, it does in terms of the travel, you know, like I've been to the last four World Cups and, you know, two of them were in huge countries and Brazil and Russia, are vast countries. And yet the, the, the travel scale here is huge. And so FIFA have tried to kind of break it down to three regional zones, a kind of east, west and then a central in the middle, and then even tighter kind of what they're calling pods, where uh, teams would have their training bases. The one exception to all of these rules that are going to be brought in is Canada. Because there, there was that kind of um, necessity that Canada would play games in both of the host cities, Toronto and Vancouver, and obviously you're crossing three time zones there. Mm. But what's interesting to me yesterday in the announcement was that you know BMO Field is the smallest of all 16 venues by a distance. Even when they were there, there will be temporary seating added to bring it up to about forty five thousand. Uh, for the tournament but that'll still be by a distance the smallest whereas you know bc place in vancouver is 55 56,000. but so what canada are going to do is start in toronto on june friday june 12th and then head west to vancouver for games two and three and stay there so i think what you'll see is they'll kind of base themselves they'll have kind of two bases as such i'd right. imagine a kind of a pre-tournament camp around toronto they might do a build-up game a kind of a friendly or a tee-up game i suppose in in ottawa or montreal or something like that but they'll kind of stick over in this neck of the woods and then head over to the west coast for games two and three but that will be a challenge and yet you know that challenge is kind of offset by the fact of having three raucous sold out nights in kind of home stadiums and what that could do for a team that should be at kind of reaching their prime if canada soccer can get their act together
0: uh bmo field is it up for this uh size of an event should they be looking at other things
3: i i struggle a bit with bmo field scott i i I think it's just, you know, it's one of those places that even, you know, you remember when the men kind of qualified for Qatar on that mm. run, they had some iconic, I know they had a couple of they did, they did an iconic night, an iconic afternoon in Hamilton too, but they had a couple of really iconic nights in BMO Field. For me, it's just too much, too many wide open spaces. Too much of the atmosphere gets lost and drifts out into Lake Ontario. They'll be adding <laughs> temporary seating, uh, about $25 million worth of, um, uh, I guess, upgrades and changes. I don't like the fact that they're all temporary. Because I think that, you know, both the women's and men's team could um, could certainly kind of, with the way soccer is going in Canada, you know, they could really kind of do with a, a 45,000 seat home here on the, uh, you know, on the eastern side of Canada. Particularly, I don't know if you saw the news today, that the, the Quebec government have announced they're spending $850 million to put a new roof on the Olympic Stadium in Montreal, which is mm. a huge white elephant, as you know. Like, I, I struggle a bit with it, but look, BMO will be ready. Uh, when a World Cup like, arrives in 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 a city, I don't think people are really ready for it. It's it's like Planet FIFA just drops down and kind of <laughs> cannibalizes. is not the right word, but it's also probably not the wrong word. Uh, the city for kind of the three or four weeks. So, you know, BMO actually, with its wide open spaces down there at Exhibition Place, is perfect for FIFA. They can have all their installations and have all their fan zones and different things. Yeah. Um, it'll be fine, but I just wish that there was something a bit more long term bang for the buck.
0: Joe Callahan with us, journalist for the Toronto Star, The Guardian and the Irish Examiner, talking about Canada to host 13 games of the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Get ready. It's going to be a barn burner. Joe, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
3: Yeah, great to chat Scott anytime mate.
0: Hard to believe almost 40 years we are the world. Uh remember when that surfaced way back when and everybody jumped uh, on board uh, leave your egos at the door that sort of thing. Well now it's the uh it's the topic of a doc on uh on netflix greatest night in music and uh it's pretty fascinating sorry greatest night in pop and uh it's fascinating to see how this all came together uh, together especially uh right after the american music awards and how they did it is beyond me let's bring in alan cross host of the ongoing history of new music canada's longest running radio documentary here now alan thanks for the time hope you're well yeah, so far, so good, Yeah. So, Alan, obviously, you know everything there is to know about the music industry. When you saw this, what stood out for you after seeing this doc about this, this song?
4: Honestly, it was, why now? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
4: I, I, I under, when I saw it pop up on Netflix, it, it really kind of surprised me because I really wasn't expecting it. I, I don't know how I missed that this thing was, was in production. But it just sort of appeared and it kind of surprised me a little bit because, okay, so this was a 1985 song. It uh, is 2024, so that's uh, 39 years. Yeah. Uh, so it, I, I I don't know why now. But it's fine because my, my wife was the one who really wanted to watch it and we sat down and went through it. And I think that there were some really interesting stories there. But um, it, it did, I, I'm just going to say it, it, it seemed to be a little self-indulgent for it to be released now because I don't know if there was a huge demand for, <laughs> for this documentary to be made. But obviously somewhere, somewhere, uh, someone in Hollywood, somebody associated with the West Coast music scene decided that the time was now and they needed to make the doc, so here it is.
0: Uh are you surprised they didn't wait a year then? Or maybe this is just the beginning of a year-long celebration?
4: It I I have no idea why this I, I Scott, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: So when you look back at this, um, and, you know, they, and there was a the big thing about the egos and bringing all these people into one place because it was they were in L.A. anyway for the American Music Awards uh, over and above the egos. How did the record companies allow this to happen? Because, you know, labels don't like other things going on with other other labels, especially back in this time of the record industry. How, how did they do this from a label perspective and get permission?
4: Well, I think you have to go back to what was happening at the time. Uh, We were gearing up for um, live aid in the summer of 1985, and the British had really taken the reins on the charity angle for the famine in Ethiopia. Uh, Bob Geldof and Band-Aid had come out in um, the late 19, uh, November 1984, which kind of caught the Americans by you know, flat-footed. Well, if, if the British are doing this, well, why shouldn't we? And that was basically where it came from. We have to wrest this charitable approach away from the British and take over the, the narrative ourselves. And that's exactly what they, they tried to do with, uh, with uh, you know, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, who were two massive artists at the time, And with Quincy Jones being behind it, probably at that moment, the most important record producer in America. Uh, And they said, "Okay, well, we're going to do it, too, because we can't be seen not to be to not be doing anything. So uh, that's where it all came from. And with Lionel Richie having a relationship with Michael Jackson and also being the host of the uh, American Music Awards at the time, It was, um, it was, the timing was right. So you have everybody in Los Angeles, and when you have Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson signed on to do the project, you're not going to say no. Now, some artists, if you watch the doc, did say no, including Prince. Um, but for everybody else, it was like, no, we, uh, we, we better do as we're told because if you didn't, It could be damaging to your career.
0: It seems odd this all happened during the affluent me generation of the 80s. Would this work now? I mean, in a very divisive world, we could use a little uh, world hug like this now. Would this work now?
4: Yeah, I I don't know if it would because it was a time and place. Remember back in the 1980s, it was the MTV generation. It was, uh, you know, the uh, Generation X in their very early years. It was. Um, it was still very rare to see these kinds of uh, cooperative ventures. And although we were seeing more and more of our artists, what they looked like, courtesy of MTV, it was still a novelty. And the idea of all these people that we were seeing on MTV in the same room together, singing a song together, is was, was pretty powerful. And again, if you, if you go back, you know, wish we had Northern Lights here in Canada. We had the same kind of thing. Everybody was getting on the bandwagon to, to do this. I don't know if this would be the, if we would have the same sort of, uh, response today because nobody buys records today. And that was a big motivation here. All the proceeds from the Mm. physical sales and all we had was physical sales went to, um, uh, went went to these uh, these charitable causes, and it was it was a time, a place, a set of circumstances that I don't think will ever be repeated.
0: Alan Cross is with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, Canada's longest running radio documentary. We are the world. Speaking of docs, you can now see it on Netflix. Alan, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Be well. Yep. You're welcome. See you later. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer,
1: he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Many ask why so many people uh, prior to the pandemic 10 years ago were investing in homes. And I remember hearing this. You know, I'm going to buy a rental. I'm going to buy this. It's like, well, why are people doing that? Because people could see that there was an increased demand and a shortage of supply. And it wasn't a bad way for the average person to make an investment. Now the average person can't even afford that home. And now as we are in the housing crisis, we've certainly seen the cap on international students and everything done uh, to try to in, encourage building incentives and, and reducing restrictions, municipalities, that sort of thing. Uh, now Ottawa has announced they're going to extend the foreign home homebuyers plan for two more years, meaning uh, harder for those who are out of country to buy homes here. I think this is for less or allowed for about two percent of the market so really isn't that much of an issue but i guess it certainly makes it sound as if we're doing something let's bring in dr ian lee associate professor sprott school of business carlton university he is here now ian thank you for the time hope you're well doing very well thank you scott so i've heard that this doesn't really amount to much but i guess in the current climate that we're in you have to
5: appear like you're doing everything Exactly so. And um, as you know, Scott, in my many conversations with you over the years, uh, I'm evidence-based. That means I look up stats can data uh, because that's where I start. That's how I teach my classes. In every class, I tell the students, don't wave your arms. Don't bloviate like a politician. Start with the data and be evidence-based. In plain English, how many foreigners, you know, those terrible foreigners who are buying up all the houses in Canada, how many are hmm. there? Well, let's go to Stats Canada. 5.6. Percent in Ontario, non-residents. BC, 7%. And in the rest of the country, it's much lower. 2, 3% in the rest of the country. So here's what these people are saying. 2 or 3 or 4 or 5% are driving huge increases in in uh, the prices, but the other 95% are having no impact whatsoever. Now, if you believe that, I've got some swampland in Florida that I can tell you is on the Atlantic Ocean. And it's worth gazillions. Just think about that, everybody. Three or four or 5% are making huge changes and swinging the real estate values. But 95%, that's all the domestic owners, are not, not having any impact whatsoever on prices. This is so silly. It is so absurd. I don't know how they're saying this.
0: To me the most obvious admission that this is a crisis especially in regard to population is when the government announces it's going to put a cap on uh, international students coming in and I know we've talked about in and this sort of thing and such um but but obviously when we're seeing a change of direction like that it, it's it's pretty much admitting there is a crisis how important is it to to link building to population growth
5: um I've been uh, writing on this, t- uh, testifying before House of Commons, oh, excuse me, uh, before Finance Committee and also before the City of Auto Committee for at least seven or eight years. And I'm not trying to tell you, Scott, that I'm some really clever person who has deep, deep secret insights. When you have two and a half million shortfall, there is a solution. I think everybody knows what I'm about to say. Build more homes. We have been deliberately, because I keep saying this, I'm sorry, but the municipalities across Canada, Hamilton in your city, has been notorious. So is my city in Ottawa, so is GTA, deliberately underbuilding homes in across Canada because of this pernicious and destructive and false stereotype that the people out in the burbs are the bad people because they drive cars and SUVs and they're causing all the global warming. And I say it's very pernicious. And some of my progressive friends have been arguing that and the people who live in the urban core have been arguing this ad infinitum. I'm almost become convinced it's because they're trying to deflect the the blame against themselves. We know that GHG emissions per person is a function of your income. The more money you make, the more things you buy, the more trips you take, the more stuff you buy. When you're very poor, you can't buy very much stuff because you don't have very much money. So where are the highest average incomes in Canada? In the urban core. Stats can data. It's not the burbs. The people in the burbs make way less than the people in downtown in Rosedale or in the beaches or in downtown Vancouver, Point Grey. So, but we, what we did, though, they pulled off this, I call it a scam, which was that they, we couldn't build more houses on the edges of the city because they're responsible for the global warming. And if we build more houses on the edges of Hamilton or the edges of Toronto or the edges of Ottawa, we're going to make global warming go through the roof. This is nonsense. People, every one of us emit global uh, GHG because it's embedded in all the things we do. The food is made with energy, fossil fuels, and it gets embedded. So I'm not going to go through the whole value chain. I'm just simply saying there is no one person that's responsible. We all emit by the fact we're human beings and we consume stuff, including food and buildings and cars and transit systems. And we, every one of those emit emissions. So we got to build more houses on the suburbs, at the edges of the city, Scott. That includes Hamilton. That includes Toronto. But you've got the urban core who are just absolutely ideologically opposed. And so guess what? We don't build. To this day, right now, 2023, well, I know we're in 24, but 2023, we're building one half of the houses, homes, homes, I mean, high rises, low rises, townhouses, garden homes, one half of the number we need.
0: This, to me, Ian, has been the absolute biggest distraction that nobody is admitting. And now that the rubber's hit the road, the wet has hit the fan, whatever you want to call it, Now we're trying to figure out how we balance extreme climate change with the need to build homes. Because you know as well as I do, we haven't built because it's a bad word. Build is a bad word because it leaves a bigger footprint and it also kills our planet. So how do you convince the extreme environmentalists that they need to build?
5: Um, I'm going to say something that probably will drive them mad, but I'm being very serious. I'm being serious and I'm a policy guy and I'm a very centrist guy. Sometimes governments have to do things that will are going to step on a minority group. And I don't mean I'm not talking uh, when I say a minority group, I'm not talking, uh, uh, you know, ethnicity or religion. In this instance, there's an extreme group. It's a minority. I think it's probably 5% of the population who are just they're anti-car. They're anti any form of development. They hate developers. They hate construction. They hate. We're just going to have to ignore them and just say, I'm sorry. You, you are not. The tail is not going to wag the dog, and we have a five percent tail wagging the ninety-five percent dog and causing great suffering for everyone else. We're just going to have to say, "I'm sorry, we've heard you. You've had your say. You've written your op-eds. You've testified before the uh, the the committees of uh, Hamilton or Ottawa or whatever. Now we're going to start building houses, and they're going to have to step. Uh, just when I say ignore them, they're going to have to go forward. All the time that these people are kicking and screaming and trying to stop the the construction of new homes on the edges. That's where we built new populations, new housing for 2,000 years in every Western city I've ever visited. London, Paris, Moscow, Kiev. I've been to all these cities traveling. And then you add on at the edges of every city, Ottawa. I mean, I'm living in the Glebe, which was the first suburb of Ottawa in 1867. And now it's part of the urban core. And we in the Glebe, we hate development out in the suburbs. We're against the suburbs, you know. We are. <laughs> we were the first suburb in 1867. It's just the city kept growing around us out and out and out. And now the boundaries of Ottawa are far, far beyond the boundaries back in 1867. Same with Hamilton. Same with Toronto. Same with Vancouver. Every city. Has done this, and now we're at this crazy point in our uh, our development where we have people seriously saying, "No, no, no! We're going to put a million new people, new immigrants coming in. We're going to put them all in the urban core with densification, and seventy percent go to three cities: Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver." So people say we're going to put up seventy percent of a million people, and we're going to put them all squash them into the downtown, or the, when I say the downtown, the urban core of these three cities, year after year after year. It's not possible. I'm not against densification, of course, but it's not going to solve our problem. Hmm. The numbers are too big.
0: Dr. Ian Lee with us, associate professor, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University, talking about housing. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. How old do you think Facebook is? 10 20 30 40 50 well let's bring in carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist he is with us now carmi thanks for the time i hope you're doing well
6: great to be with you scott thanks for having me all
0: right are you surprised uh, carmi that facebook is turning 20 i thought it was dead
6: yeah i'm i'm amazed that uh time seems to move this quickly i remember when it was first launched and kind of it felt like the future uh and and it, it time really has kind of uh you know, it, it, you know it, it's almost like you're you're you know you're, you're kind of enjoying the experience that's why it goes so quickly but at the same time uh the company has gone through some huge uh you know you know controversy to the point that at the age of 20 you kind of wonder if it's going to see the age of 30 in its current state like it is uh it's almost like it's well past its best before date and you know 20 doesn't seem that old but uh, in the world of social media facebook is proving yeah maybe it is maybe it's time to look beyond uh current state what does that mean how would it change Uh, It means that demographically the world has passed it by, whereas when Facebook was first launched, it was launched as the Facebook, and it was from uh, Mark Zuckerberg's Harvard dorm room. and It was available only to students in Harvard, uh, and then eventually it expanded to other universities. So its original demographic was really young uh, and really advantaged. And then over the years, in 2006, it was opened up to pretty much anyone who wanted to use it and since then it you know now young kids don't use it at all they've all moved on to tiktok and snapchat facebook of course has become uh, the 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 fa- the social media platform that kids don't use that's where mom and dad and grandma and grandpa are <laughs> it's just not the cool place where you go and if you look at at the feed today uh, compared to what it was 15 20 years ago uh, you know 20 years ago, if you signed into Facebook and you followed your friends, what you saw was your friends. Uh, Today, what you see is it's anybody's guess because now the algorithm decides what you see. And most of what you see in your feed isn't necessarily content that you would have chosen to see. It's what the technology decides you should see, which changes the nature of the experience. It's no longer about the end user It's really about how the technology can manipulate itself to serve up as many ads to you and make as much money as possible for Mark Zuckerberg and his shareholders. And so it really has become, of all the cynicism that we now direct towards social media in general, I would argue that much of it is directed toward uh, Facebook, the platform and Meta, the company that owns Facebook, because really this is the company that figured out how to monetize these users. And this is the company on you know who we blame for the shift in social media from what was once kind of like a kumbaya-like experience. We're all sitting around the campfire and connecting and you know, really like the, a, a achieving the best that technology can deliver to now it's incredibly cynical. They're raiding our, our data. They're doing all sorts of things that we don't like. And quite frankly, it doesn't make us feel all that good to be using it. I blame Facebook for that.
0: Um, so monetization, uh, commercialization
6: of Facebook killed it. The, you, could you say that for everything? Of course you can, um, and, and I ser- it's certainly not this one company's fault, but as the first truly successful social media, it wasn't the first social media company. You know, we had Friendster, MySpace, uh, were pretty dominant beforehand, but in terms of scale, Facebook very quickly eclipsed them and essentially relegated them to the dustbin of history. And so Facebook became the first truly successful social media platform of the social media age. It defined what social media uh, was originally and what it has become since then. So a lot of the negativity, a lot of the the darker traits uh, of social media, the the data harvesting, the, the you sort of Pushing up against government regulations and 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 sparring with governments, including ours here, uh, really was it was Facebook pushing that agenda, uh, and so I think it's fair to lay a good chunk of the blame on them because they set the tone that the rest of the industry ultimately followed.
0: So once the parents and grandparents move on or pass on, uh, that's it for Facebook. It's like the I Frank think- Sinatra. It's like the Frank Sinatra of social media.
6: I think so. I I, I I I've always said no technology lasts forever. And if you look at, for example, like earlier Pioneers of technology. Look at Microsoft. Uh, you know, early in its in its evolution, Microsoft became a giant by virtue of uh, a licensing deal that it signed to bundle a version of its operating system DOS with every IBM compatible computer that was sold. That funded their early development. Eventually, they became uh, a, a software company that specialized in operating systems like Windows uh, and and productivity software like Office. Well. Uh, you know, those are no longer hot categories, yet Microsoft has found other playgrounds to play in. And so I think that is largely explains why Facebook ultimately changed its corporate branding to Meta. They bought Instagram. They bought WhatsApp. They're investing mm-hmm. in the metaverse. They're doing all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the original Facebook.com website or Facebook app. And I think at some point, Meta is going to always own Facebook. But Facebook, the service that we've come to know, love, and maybe not so love – uh, it's probably going to be seen as yesterday's news, and we'll still use it in much the same way that everyone still still uses Windows and still kind of uses Office, but it hmm. won't be the driver of this company's future uh, like it once was. What's the biggest social media site now, and what's its shelf life? Uh, TikTok uh, is the is the one that yeah. is uh, globally dominant. It's the one that is kind of central to everyone's cultural radar. It's where new music is, uh, is is uh, first surfaced first discovered. Uh, you know, it really is the social media platform of the moment um but that's the key scott it's of the moment and so its shelf life will probably be shorter than facebook's because as time goes on that that rate that rate of of uh, acceleration rate of development of evolution in platforms it continues to get faster. And so if Facebook had 20 years to grow, dominate, and then ultimately recede, I think TikTok's got maybe 10 or 15. And then whatever comes after TikTok will have even less and less and less till eventually we talk about social media in the rear view. In other words, at some point, social media as a, as a category, as a whole, will be something that we look at in the rear view. What will TikTok's downfall be? Uh, I think part of it will be similar to what happened to Facebook. I think uh, end users will age out. Uh, In other words, when you're in middle, you know, it's one thing when you're a teenager or a tween or, or someone in your early 20s and you're watching video after video all day long. Uh, and it's quite another once you're an adult and you've got responsibilities and kids and life and all that. You don't have mm-hmm. as much time to watch that, that degree of video. And quite frankly, it just doesn't matter to you to the same degree. So I think part of it is demographics. It's just we all move on. We all get older and our tastes change and the technologies don't change to the same degree. Uh, and then I think also something better will come along that will, that will take up our time. We'll all start wondering, do I really want to spend my days loafing through my feeds? Uh, we've been doing that for 20 years, and that's kind of getting old now. No matter what the what tool it is, they all kind of work the same way, and I think eventually we're just going to get bored of it.
0: I always learn something, Carmi. Age out. Aged out. That's my new favorite term. All right, Carmi <laughs> Levy with this technology analyst and journalist. Facebook, turning 20. Thank you, Carmi. Be well. Appreciate it, Scott. Take care. Uh, this came out over the weekend, and it's fascinating, but I'm not sure if it is – Anything out of the norm, uh, more than 15 percent of immigrants decide to leave Canada to either return to their homeland or immigrate to other countries within 20 years after admission as a permanent resident. A study also found 5 percent of immigrants admitted between 82 and 2017 emigrated within five years of their admission. To talk more about all of this, Moshe Lander with us, senior economy, uh, economics lecturer with Concordia University and here now. Moshe, thank you for the time. Hope you're well always a pleasure. Moshe, is, are these numbers out of the ordinary? Because again, just anecdotally, I know when my mother came, you know, some settled here, some went to other fa- uh, other members of the family, went to other provinces, some went to the United States. Is this, is this out of place uh, for, for, with where we are in history?
7: I don't think so. It, it, you know, you said that it's 15%. So let's turn it on its head and say that five out of every six stay in the country. And so that's a pretty solid number. Uh, And the the ones that are leaving are probably leaving for the same reasons that even Canadians might want to leave uh, in terms of uh, the the tax system, the ability to be entrepreneurial, uh, and just the various bottlenecks that all of us experience cold winters and and other sorts of uh, infrastructure issues.
0: Plus, 20 years is a long period of time. You can do a lot in 20 years, including having a family.
7: And that's exactly it. And so part of it is, you know, it's it's a much more complicated function than of when do you come? What's your age? Uh, When you get here, what's your purpose? Are you coming for education? Are you coming for a job? What type of jobs do you settle into? What type of skills did you have when you arrived? So it's such a complex issue. To to reduce it down to a a simple number probably misses a lot of the, the more complicated stories behind what makes people decide to stay or leave. So
0: this wouldn't be a bad thing, would it?
7: No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, the reality is that uh, Canada these days, is give or take around two out of five people in Canada were born outside of the country. Uh, it's, uh, other than First Nations, uh, it is a country that's built on immigration. Uh, this is just further confirmation that uh, we've always been that way. And we continue to be a lot more open and welcoming than, say, maybe our neighbours to the south.
0: Uh, are people understanding this may just be a first step in somebody's journey?
7: For sure. And sometimes that's all it is, right? If you're coming here for an education, uh, you know, we have world-class facilities at a variety of universities. And so sometimes it's merely a matter of uh, picking up your degree and then moving on. And really, that wouldn't be any different than, say, a Canadian-born and raised person who gets their education here in Canada and then decides they want to take off for greener pastures uh, in their field.
0: Are we to assume that they're leaving because it's just not good enough here? There aren't enough services, there aren't enough this, and all the things that we seem to be lacking right now.
7: Yeah, probably at its simplest, I think it's just a function of supply and demand. And so it it could be that just what they are demanding is not what's in supply, or what they're supplying is just not what we're demanding, right? So it could be in both directions. But, uh, you know, again, I, I don't think that the immigrant experience is going to be fundamentally different than somebody who grew up here If you can't find affordable housing, if you can't find good schooling for your kids, if you can't find a family doctor, if you find the winters are too tough, then if you have mobility and if you already have the experience having immigrated once to a a country and and tried to pick up language, culture, customs, uh, doing it a second time becomes a little bit easier, uh, especially
0: if you haven't laid deep roots. And these numbers don't appear historically much different from trends of past years. Yeah, it's really a function of, you know, what's going
7: on at the time. So this was a a 30-year study that uh, they were taking a look at. So if you try and take a look at 30-year periods, going back in Canada's history, you're going to pick up two world wars, you're going to pick up uh, the independence from the UK and the creation of confederation. And then going even further back, it, it's really a different story then, because you're now talking about the mid-1800s and earlier, and so it's not even a comparable study. So it, it, it's hard to, to put it in a context historically, but uh, you know to, to take Canada's position that we've always been welcoming of immigrants into the country, uh, it is consistent with that.
0: Um, The housing crisis that we're experiencing and the connection to all of this, is it as difficult uh, perhaps for new Canadians to find housing as it is for Canadians who've been here for a generation?
7: Absolutely. In fact, it's probably even harder because they don't necessarily have the banking history. They don't have the financial history built up with the banks. They might have a different view of the banks where we're just naturally comfortable doing business with the big six. Uh, Those big six are familiar to us for an entire lifetime. Uh, to them, it is a foreign bank. It, it's merely a matter of uh, do they trust them and do they have the, the detailed information, two years of notices of assessment and uh, T4s and proof of jobs. And, mm. uh, you know, that could make it a lot harder for them. And so if they're not coming with a lot of cash in hand to make the down payment, they can find it even more struggling. And in a lot of the immigrants' case, they're heading for the biggest Canadian cities, which usually have the biggest housing problems. Uh, where you and I might be much more comfortable moving to northern Ontario, because at least we have a familiarity with southern Ontario, uh, it might be something totally culturally unexpected for them.
0: Motion, should our population targets be linked to housing?
7: I think that the funding that's passed down should be linked to housing. So I don't know that we necessarily need to have immigration targets. I think what we need is that, municipalities that get a huge chunk of their money from the provincial government and the provincial governments that get a huge chunk of their money from the federal government. This is the one lever that provinces and the federal government can exert over municipal markets, which is just to say, if you don't meet certain housing targets, if you don't have certain zoning laws in place, if you don't show that you're ready to absorb certain amounts of people, uh, then we're just going to limit the amount of funding that we hand you as, as part of your annual transfer. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to do it. And that way, then, the federal government can give guidelines to the cities that this is the number that we're going to be admitting, and this is where we anticipate they're going to be moving. And if there's those types of targets, it also makes it easier for immigrants coming into the country to be almost guided as to where you should or should not be heading.
0: Moshe Lander with a senior economics lecture, Concordia University. Moshe, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime.
1: When there's an issue, Scott
0: is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
5: Hamilton Today with
1: Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CXMW.
0: What is a lost leader? Do you know what that is? It's something that a grocer would use to bring you in. Uh, mark the price down below, probably what it normally is, to bring you into the store, hoping you'll buy other things on the way out. For Big Ben Strong, the lost leader is Walmart's hot dogs. Or was it Costco? I'm sorry. Yeah. Costco. I don't know. I don't know if that's much of a loss for the company, but uh, you never know. Whatever brings you in the door. Let's bring in Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab uh, Facility, or sorry, Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University and here now. Janet, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. All right. I'm not sure if I described it accurately, but what is considered, what's the definition of a loss leader?
1: No, I think you did a pretty good job. It's one of those products that you wouldn't normally buy, but it's such a good price that you pop in to pick something up. And then while you're there, you might as well spend some money on some other stuff since you've made the trip, right? We can kind of think of it as a door crasher. We've heard that term before. Something that's just marked down below the price that the market had paid for it in order to get you in the door to buy other things.
0: How is this used? How is a loss leader used to a grocer's advantage, or anybody's for that matter?
1: Yeah, and grocery stores aren't certainly aren't the only kind of market that would use a strategy like this. And actually, this isn't the only kind of pricing strategy that they use. It's really interesting that we're talking about this now as a society. A good thing, actually, you know, because I think that we don't really know a lot about how grocers do their job, right? And, you know, really, uh, here in Canada, we're not really spoiled for choice, right? We do have some small independent grocers, which people should absolutely uh, stop by. But we're really talking about big box stores, chains. Now, you mentioned Walmart and Costco. Walmart, you know, they write the book on this stuff. They're really good at, at product placement, at pricing, at just-in-time kind of supply chain stuff. But Loblaws, Metros, and Sobeys, they use these things as well. And so, you know, I think a common example is those perishable items. That's really what it works for. You want to pick it up fast. And then generally speaking, if you're going to buy a perishable item to eat tonight, you're probably going to get some stuff to go along with it. So if you're picking up a rotisserie chicken or you're grabbing, you know, a six-piece chicken legs and, and some french fries, Well, you might as well get some of that laundry detergent you know you're going down low on or, or, you know, rice or bread or whatever else it is that you know you're low on. You've already made the trip into the store. You might as well pick it up. Maybe it's not on sale, but you're already saving some money on the loss leader, so you're okay to spend that now. It's really a psychology kind of game for consumer behavior that these stores are so good at.
0: Talk about the placement of products, even in the store, and how they are placed even around the loss leader. For example, you go in for the loss leader, but then you see all the accessories that you'll need for that around it.
1: That's right, and so this is a really fascinating area of study if people are looking at consumer behavior, where things are in relation to the products that you need. Generally speaking, you know milk? You know, Many of us use milk as a staple. It's all the way back at the end of the store. You got to walk past all of those things. And if you're stopping in after work, maybe you're hungry. You know, maybe you think you need a, You deserve a treat. I oh, know I certainly deserve treats when I stop in the grocery store after work. You know, you're going to grab something. You're going to grab it off the shelf because it's right there in front of your face. Not only where in the store are things placed important, but at shelf level where they're placed, that's important as well. And so, you know, you generally speaking, the things that you buy, Uh, that are in your kind of staple area, they might be higher up out of your sight line. You know you're going to reach for those anyway. So they put some of these things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily always buy right at your line of sight. Now, of course, that's different for those of us who are very short. Our line of sight is very different. But generally speaking, this is how things are placed end caps. Those are what we call the end of the aisle. You know, right. generally speaking, you would see like paper towel or toilet paper that goes on sale. Those tend to be an end cap. And then you see these little kind of luxury items like like lip balm, kind of, or something plastic that you'd use to slice eggs or apples or, or maybe a little strainer. Those are kind of hung in weird places along the, the aisle, That maybe you're stopped to read the back of a can of something and you see that out of the corner of your eye and you think, oh, that's five bucks. I could use some lip balm and you toss it right in your cart. So, again, all of these things are very strategic and it's down to a very fine science. They know what they're doing to get you to spend the most money while you're in there.
0: So best just to go in what you're getting for or you went in for and then got right out or should you shop if there's another sale?
1: Well, I think what this, you know, what it all boils down to is that we're paying for convenience, right? We're paying a premium for convenience. You know, we know that people are, you know, the two things that people shop by is price and convenience. And there's a trade-off between both. And so if you really want to save money when you're shopping at the grocery store, you need to make a list and make a plan and go in and get those things and then go home and prep for the week. But we generally don't do that. We're not really good at doing that. Maybe we were our grandparents' generation. Maybe our parents were good at that, but we've lost that kind of skill. But if we want to save money on food, we're going to have to pick that up again. Otherwise, we're paying a premium for convenience.
0: What about those that are on display, products on display near the checkout? I know Canadian Tire is amazing for this. You've got to walk through three aisles before you even get to the checkout.
1: Oh, yeah. And fun little things too that you would never need yeah. in a million years. But somehow I managed to get a back scratcher that's extendable that looks like a fork. <laughs> I, you know, but it's so, you know, it's kind of fun. It's amusing, especially Canadian tire, right? Because they have, it's not food items, they're just random headlamps yeah. or gloves or, you know, de icers. And and it's kind of fun in that way. And we, you know, if you're waiting in line there, you kind of get amused if you're looking at these kinds of things. But they're not generally things you go to the store for. You'll notice in the grocery store, you know, in some areas they've started putting bananas in a, you know, in a kind of a stand by the checkout now. Mm, mm. They're starting to put, put more perishable items where it used to be kind of magazines, uh, yeah. soda pop, chocolate bars. Now you're going to see things like uh, oranges and bananas things that you know, I think are uh, maybe a little bit morally better for you, uh, speaking in terms of chocolate versus banana. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to really get rid of those chocolate bars because those are really easy to throw. If you're already getting $200 worth of groceries, maybe you're going to just throw a dairy milk on top of that. But so those are things that will fit easily into your purse and are not going to break the bank in terms of what you're paying for in groceries.
0: Janet Music with us, Research Program Coordinator, Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University, the loss leader, the thing that gets you into the grocery store to buy on sale and then you just load up on everything else. Janet, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: We hear a lot of late of uh, some sort of ceasefire deal that is being thrown around between Israel and Hamas. And is that moving forward? What does it mean? If it does, let's bring in Dr. Robert Huish, Associate Professor with the Department of International Development Studies, Dalhousie University. And here now, Robert, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
8: Yeah, thanks very much,
0: Scott. Great to be with you. So we we keep hearing more and more Robert about a ceasefire. Where are we with this? Is it is is this something that will help with humanitarian efforts or is this just another opportunity to reload?
8: Yeah, so I think what we can see now that the US is taking more of a ingrained stance in the Middle East that there could be opportunity for a ceasefire to come up, and here's some of the moving components that need to happen with that. Uh, first off, is that you know Israel is claiming that uh, most of the, the the brigades, the Hamas brigades inside Gaza, have been dismembered and dismantled, uh, but there's still leadership. There's still leadership. There's still financing. There's still networks out there that allow financing and weaponry from Iran to make its way to Gaza. Uh, there's a complicated geography we can get into there, but That needs to be broken down Uh, the other thing that needs to be addressed as well on the israeli side is the handling of this war by benjamin netanyahu there's a lot of unpopularity there as well so now with the u.s coming into this there's there's now this drawing in of u.s forces both by attacks in yemen and now in jordan by iran iranian backed uh, uh i guess proxy groups if you will And so now the US is in a position to actually start being more assertive at a bargaining table. And I think two things that the US would like to see happen. First is that a ceasefire gets put in place before Ramadan kicks off, which is around March the 10th. And the second would be that the conflict or sort of an agreement of a long term ceasefire is in place before the US election comes up in November. And the reason those two calendar dates are important is because there can be a lot of uh, instability around these times uh, that could see offshoot conflicts. They could see uh, things not sort of go in total control. And the amount of diplomacy that the U.S. has been putting into the region and across many, many countries in the Arab world to make sure that this, this ceasefire goes forward now is something that seems to have some momentum behind it
0: can a ceasefire lead to the end of a conflict or is it a matter of time and then it starts up again if it isn't in by if if uh, it isn't over by a certain period of time uh, conflict will resume is this a solution is there a solution here or is this delaying
8: you know it's a really good question and both cases can happen and if we just sort of look historically and globally for a minute it depends what is given over during a ceasefire agreement i mean if it's full peace agreement and full peace building then both parties have to come to the table prepared to take losses right and i think the the big momentum to do that in in the case with israel and hamas is change of leadership on both sides that would be a big bargaining chip in there but if you look at it historically just remember that in korea for example north korea and south korea they have never come to a peace agreement. It yeah. is technically a long-term ceasefire. Uh, the, the the troubles in Ireland, with Ireland and the United Kingdom, that was a decades-long peace-building process with many ceasefires in there as well. But what happens in both cases is there has to be respect for international order and international law. And that's sort of a bigger problem that many countries are are getting uh, fearful about. Right? We, we've seen the disrespect of international order and law so much in 2023 parts of 2022 russia into ukraine now looking at what's gone on in the middle east other conflicts that have broken out uh, in, in in africa and even south america including ecuador so that fracturing of international order could jeopardize any sort of ceasefire or peace building process uh because
0: obviously there's some that are not interested in that happening even with peace or a ceasefire uh, though Robert, we still need a solution. Uh, still need a way to move forward. This is still a territorial issue. Um, how do we get there? Yeah,
8: that's that's a real tough one because the the sort of if we just go back to Israel and, and Palestine, the the two state solution has always sort of been like the golden target yeah. uh, to creating to, to creating peace there. But it's how it's it, it control is established over that entire area, and right now. Israeli defense forces even before the conflict have had such a dominant presence in in the region I mean from currencies to what gets imported into uh West Bank or into to, to Gaza uh, access to 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 work rights and social care um and and, and of course imprisonment of, of young men and women is all decided by uh by the government in Israel and that's uh, that's a huge thing to deal with and, and until there's sort of a succession of, of authority uh, by Israel into Palestine, I don't think we're going to see a two-state solution anytime soon, even though many experts would agree that that is the way forward.
0: It seems everybody agrees with that except the participating parties. Um, how do Palestinians move away from Hamas? How do they separate themselves from Hamas?
8: Well, if we look at the fact that, we've, that Palestine is physically broken up, Between the West Bank and then Gaza, and Hamas has got that entrenchment in Gaza. Uh, There's there's really a a a danger at the moment to say who is going to fill that power vacuum uh, as as Israeli defense forces continue to push further and further south into Gaza. Now, could Fatah, the 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 group on the West Bank, could they find a role in there? What what could be promised uh, in terms of rebuilding the the, the the Gaza Strip itself uh, after this conflict, that's unclear. And it's really gonna be a question of who is in a position to to rebuild and heal after this this pretty brutal conflict for the past four months or so. Uh who's able to to re to rebuild that that place and sort of reconfirm uh Gazan identity and that's really unclear. I think what we're really worried about uh is the fact that if Hamas is broken apart, they're out of there with their networks, their soldiers, their their militants, does another group come in with the same agenda? And uh, would they inflict the same sort of governance culture that Hamas has had over over Gaza, which, you know, we, we see all sorts of uh, issues that have led to prolonged suffering of Gazan people under Hamas. And that's what we don't want to see happening again.
0: Are other Middle Eastern countries interested in this and helping Palestinians find their way?
8: You know, in a way, we see some participation by Qatar uh, as sort of being this this broker state. We see that Egypt has a very committed concern to to what's going on in Gaza, uh, because as Gaza does physically border Egypt, don't forget that Egypt also receives a tremendous amount of military aid from the U.S. and that they, they are also have security uh, in place to to monitor what goes on in, in Gaza as well. Lebanon is another question because there is Hezbollah that's influenced there. They'd probably like to see it taken in a different direction that may not go towards a, a peaceful resolution uh, quite Quite yet, but of course, what everyone's talking about here is is the sort of proxy influence that we've seen come from Iran over the other parts of of, of the Middle East during this time. Uh, the, the the shipping, the military networks, the, the the connections between Hamas, now the Houthis, other groups that are now being uh, active belligerents in the region, all have connections to Iran and. Um, you know, Mr. Biden uh, is, is saying, look, we, we don't want direct engagement with Iran by any means, even though there are some voices in the Republican Party and the states that are encouraging it. Um, the Democrats are saying, no, we don't want to actually deal with Iran head on. But that's going to be the big factor going forward is that we're still going to see Iran having a very strong influence uh, in the region as long as there's any sort of instability where they can find opportunity in.
0: Dr. Robert Hewish with us, associate professor, at Department of International Development Studies, Dalhousie University, on the ongoing war between Israeli uh, Israel and Hamas and a possible ceasefire.
8: Robert, thank you for the time,
0: much appreciated. Be well.
8: Okay, you too, Scott. Thanks so
0: much, indeed. You may have heard King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer. You might remember last week he was in uh, for treatment around his uh, regarding his prostate, and then apparently this was discovered. At that time, from what we know, but information is limited. Let's bring in Peter McNally, Professor Emeritus with School of Information and the Director of History at the McGill Project, McGill University, and McGill's Royal Watcher. He's here now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
9: Uh, I'm in great shape. Good, great chatting with you, Scott.
0: So, what do we know about uh, the King's uh, illness? Uh, obviously, in for a prostate issue last week, and then this was discovered then. Is that accurate?
9: That seems to be the case. Um, the palace. I just checked the palace website, giving out very, very few details. They say simply that during the course of the examination or the procedure with the for the prostate, uh, this other cancer was found. Now that raises all sorts of interesting questions. Was it found in the uh, area of the prostate, or was it from a test uh, that was just allied to it, and therefore? the cancer is in a totally different part of his body. The worry would be that if it's in the area of the prostate, of course, that's a soft tissue area. And as we know, a soft tissue with cancer can be a problem. On the other hand, if it was uh, just detected with the test, well, it could be in any part of the body. And Mm. we all know with cancer, uh, that can either mean something that's very treatable and slow moving or not.
0: Uh, are you surprised at the info that was released uh, in limited form?
9: Uh, no, I'm not really. Uh, I think the royal family takes the attitude that they have a, a right to some privacy. They live such public lives. You'll note that when the late queen, uh, at the end of her life, uh, we got very little Specific information. Uh, the death certificate said simply she died of old age. Now, subsequently, we've heard that uh, there was a likelihood that it was bone cancer, but that's never been officially confirmed. So, the fact that the king feels that he wants to be private. The same with Catherine, the uh, the, the the Princess of Wales, uh, yeah. Prince William's wife. Uh, we know she was in hospital uh, a week or so ago for uh, abdominal surgery. But no details beyond that have as yet been given. That doesn't mean it won't slip out later, but at the moment, no, we don't know.
0: And from what we understand, the treatment has already started, and he's pulled back on duties. Is that accurate?
9: That seems to be accurate. Um, the fact that the uh, that the treatment is at home suggests that uh, they're not looking at the moment at invasive surgery. It may suggest that it's simply uh, um, medication, uh, chemicals of various sort. Um, uh, we all know, of course, you know what what that can involve, and sometimes uh, people live with it quite easily, and other times you can have pretty bad reactions to chemotherapy.
0: Uh, will we know more? Will we find out more in the future of either of these illnesses from either member of the family?
9: Well, um, first of all, these things do have a way of of, sleep, of, of uh, seeping out, and so probably, yes, we will. But the real uh, giveaway will be public appearances. We've been told, for instance, that in the case of uh Catherine, the Princess of Wales, uh that she, she's going to not be making any public appearances till Easter. In the case of the king, all we've been told is, is canceling all uh public appearances immediately, and but that he will continue on with his constitutional duties, you know, which which are which are significant, you know, meeting with the Prime Minister, uh this enormous um, amount of paperwork which he has to review and approve and this sort of thing. But uh, there are are major issues at times, you know, during the year when members of the royal family are expected to appear in public. And if he doesn't appear, if it goes beyond a certain point, then serious questions will be asked and the palace will be under quite a bit of uh, pressure to provide answers.
0: Peter McNally with us, Professor Emeritus, School of Information, Director of History with the McGill Project at McGill University, McGill's Royal Watcher. Peter, thanks for the update. Much appreciated. Be well.
9: Thank you so much. Great chatting with you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word, this one comes from Norman via email. The Insurance Bureau says 200 cars are stolen a day in Canada. It's a national crisis. Do you know what the penalty is if you get caught stealing a car? I don't either. Maybe we should. Keep right except to pass.